gotten to a point where I try to think of all the things that I want to accomplish in that week, not just through the business, but also personally. And I try to schedule everything in so that the week doesn't end. And I say, well, I only did this or I only did that. And I never got the things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I make sure that I get exercise, you know, outdoor physical things that I like doing. I love cycling and rock climbing and hiking and running. And I make sure I have that. I make sure that I have time with my family. Mm -hmm. And those are things that I literally, they're embedded in my calendar. I make sure I take my kids to school and I take them out to dinner and I do those things and that I'm around and I make sure that when I'm working, I'm working really efficiently. To work efficiently means you have to really be focused on what needs to get accomplished and how you're going to accomplish it. And you're not focusing on every little thing that comes in on your inbox. And that's something that I had to learn. I used to get, and I still do, I mean, I probably get two, 300 emails a day. And if I spent all day just trying to respond to my email, I literally wouldn't finish and I wouldn't get anything done. Welcome to My Company Story. It's a show by business owners about business owners. I'm your host, Don Burge. In each episode, we'll explore the challenges business owners face and how they've overcome them. Welcome, I'm with Greg Lehrman. He's the founder and CEO of Output, a music software business written for music makers by music makers. Greg, thanks for being here with me today. Can you tell me a little bit about Output and how it was started and what the company's all about? So Output is a music software company. We create software for people that are making music, not just consuming, but you know the actual musicians, the sound designers, composers. You can kind of think of us like a little Adobe for the music making world. Output was started, let's see, it's been five and a half years. So five and a half years ago, uh, I launched it. I had two co-founders, John Nye and Neil Hallman. They were my first two hires here. And you know, it was a, a company built to solve the needs of people like myself. I mean, the first product was literally me looking to build a tool for myself uh, that I wasn't even trying to make public. I mean, mm. it was just something that I wanted. I was willing to spend a couple dollars to build this thing and have it and make my life easier. So I think when you're in a very specific niche, you're in a world where you are doing something every single day, you know exactly what's needed. And I knew what I wanted. You know, once I got further into it and other people received word about what I was working on, I realized that there was more interest. Mm -hmm. In fact, we had a company that offered to potentially distribute our product and it was one of the biggest companies in the industry. And I realized at that point, you know, maybe there's something more to this. And so at that, uh, you know, at that point, I really doubled down commitment and financial commitment and built something that was much bigger, but knowing that I would then have to sell the product to recoup the expense. And so it was two years we worked on our first software product. It was called Rev. It was all about sounds in reverse. And from there, you know, we launched it two years after we started. And uh, that was the birth of Output. And where did you start and how did you start your company? I'm uh, originally from New York, mm -hmm. but I moved out here, oof, I guess it was about 17 years ago. It's kind of Scary to I'm hear wise. that. <laughs> I know. But I came out here to write music for film and TV. And so I, my first job was working for a, a well-known composer named Hans Zimmer. Mm -hmm. And after that, another composer named Jeff Rona. And so I, I apprenticed and worked for other writers for a long time. And we were often hired to be content providers for bigger companies, software, uh, music publishing. And so I learned very early on how to create you know, create sound and create content for software in addition to film and TV shows. And so 
Um, that's really what I had been doing. I went from there to BMG Publishing, mm-hmm. which was eventually acquired by Universal Music Publishing. And I was executive producer of their film and TV catalog. And from there, went on my own, started my own production company. I was working on music for commercials and trailers and video games and uh, ended up just making a little toy and it's turned into this. Did you make the toy because there wasn't another toy out there like that that you could use? Or why did you have to make this thing yourself? I was looking for something very specific. There's a process in music production where people flip audio in reverse. And it's a very simple thing. It's just one of these tools that a lot of people do. It's, a, it's sort of a trick. And it's easy to flip a sample in reverse. It's really hard to flip an entire melody in reverse. And what I mean by that, and I know it's kind of a, a very specific thing in our world, but for example, I would work on a melody. And to get that sound in reverse, I'd have to flip the whole thing backwards. And then I'd have to cut up every note and rearrange every note. Because a melody that was ascending, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, mm-hmm. when I flip that backwards, would be da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm. So if I was playing something in and then I wanted that to, to be doubled by a reverse sound, mm-hmm. which has a very interesting and unique kind of timbre to it, I'd have to cut up every single note and rearrange it. So it was a very technical thing. I just wanted a tool that would solve that problem. Right. In solving that problem, we realized we also created a, a tool for sound design that was very creative and almost magical sounding. There's mm. something about reverse elements that have a very modern and sort of futuristic but organic feel. Mm. And so this tool also enabled people to make really beautiful music. Hmm. That's what it was. We put it out there and people not only liked it as as a tool in and of itself, but also they started writing music with it. How did you put it out there? I mean, so you wrote this thing in your garage or your your room somewhere, right? And then you just posted it on the internet. How did tell me about that process of getting the word out and letting people know about what you had? Okay. We had to go about the launch in as detailed a way as we could. And all we knew was, let's get a website together where people could buy it Mm -hmm. and download it. Mm -hmm. Let's make a really cool launch video. Mm -hmm. And then let's get everybody that we knew in the industry to share it. And that was, you know, trade magazines and music magazines, but also just all of our friends. And so, you know, that was my world, was the music industry. And so, you know, fortunately, everybody I knew kind of came through and shared it. And uh, the video went viral, and we were profitable from the first day we launched. So what was the video like? What was in the video that made it viral, do you think? So there's an amazing cinematographer. His name is uh, Drew Jirachi. He's a time-lapse photographer, and he's the guy who did the opening for House of Cards. So I had never met Drew, but I'd written a lot of music for Universal, and I kept noticing that there was this guy that kept licensing my music for all of his time-lapse videos. And I loved his work. And so I ended up reaching out to him and just sent him a note and said, hey, by the way, thanks for licensing all my music through Universal. Here's my name. Just wanted to say hi. There was nothing more to it. Yeah. And when we were going to launch this, we thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we can get him involved and maybe he'd be interested, although we had no budget. No money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we called him and he decided to fly out and basically do us a solid. And so... We had this concept. The first product was called Rev. Mm-hmm. Our idea was that it was going to be a time lapse of, we knew a, a woman, she goes by human, it's uh, Alison Torneros. We were going to have her slowly do a mural over the course of six or seven hours. But before she started the mural, 
it was going to say the product name Rev on the canvas. You see Rev, then she's going to do a six-hour mural on top. Covering up Rev. Covering it all up. Yeah. And then this guy Drew was going to do a time lapse of the entire thing. And the video would start at the end and would go backward. The problem was that when we finished it, we realized nobody knew anything about the product. We had this great thing going and then realized as a product launch, it was pretty useless. So (laughs) we ended up having to kind of cut a few things together. And so we cut that sort of product launch video along with a bit of a demo of what this product does and what Uh. it sounds like. And the combination of the two kind of got across what it was, and yet it still sounded pretty good and showed it off the visuals. Is that the video that went viral, though, that one that you made with him and cut and then with your information on it, and then it went out there, and then people loved it and just starts bringing it around? Yeah, absolutely. I think probably what had the most impact when we launched is by day one, I had probably 30 or 40 well-known music makers saying that this was an amazing product and truly standing behind it. So you kind of pre-sold it to your friends, getting their endorsement on it. And honestly, most of the people weren't even friends. Some of them were friends, but Mm -hmm. most of them were friends of friends. I'd get in touch with somebody and say, hey, I know you through this person, would you mind checking this out and tell me if you like it and give me feedback? And if you do like it, would you mind giving me a quote? Mm. And, you know, obviously there are a lot of people that never responded. I think a lot of people are very picky about what they say when it's going to be public. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that all these, you know, impressive musicians truly love the product, spoke well for the product itself. The first lesson that I learned was make sure people that, that you trust professionally stand behind your product. And when they don't, your product isn't ready to go to market. There have mm-hmm. been times where we did the same thing and people came back and said, no, I don't particularly love it. And we pulled it, you know, we, we, we pulled it. And then either we, we didn't release it at all or we continued working on it until it got much better. Was that on subsequent products? Not the on first- subsequent On products. subsequent products. Absolutely. Right, right. So you had kind of a beta group or a test group that would say, yep, yeah or nay. Yeah. And I think products. it's- a, Absolutely. I think you have to know who your beta group is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a very big difference between, you know, just pulling a a random beta group online of people that you've never met and talking to people that you know and trust. So you did that for about a year or so of just testing, building, getting feedback, tweaking, getting the video made, doing all of this work with no revenue coming in from the product. I mean, you had other, you did your music, so you had a little bit of something to live on, I imagine. But really, two years actually for two years, two years for two years, and then with a couple of guys who were working with you full time. Yeah, they were full time. I had hired them from the beginning to work specifically on this. Mm -hmm. There were a few moments where my, you know, my writing life, my writing uh, career got quite busy, and so I had to stop doing that completely, and Mm -hmm. I needed their help on that. Yeah, for the most part, we were on this for two years. And did you know going into it after a short time, after six months, or after so, hey, this is, I'm going to really dedicate my life or my, my, these next two years or five years to this project because it's going to work. I mean, were you just convinced in your heart this was something that was really needed in the music world, or were you still a little bit uncertain, like, I don't know? I was excited about it, but I definitely, this wasn't something that I thought I was going to drop everything and do. Mm. It was kind of a fun little side thing that I was working on. Okay. And no, I mean, my, it's funny, my life, my dreams have always been to write music. And I was finally at a point where I was writing music and 
I started to get a little bored because what nobody tells you is that you end up sitting in a room by yourself all day, every day in front of a computer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for two years we were working on this product and at the same time I was scoring a number of films and TV shows. And, and really, even after we launched Output and we launched the first product, for the next two or three years, I was still scoring things while I'm running the company. Mm -hmm. And it was never that I wanted to choose writing music over, over running Output or vice versa. It eventually got to a point where I wanted to have a manageable work day. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have to come in, write music, you know, from five to eight in the morning and then run a company from, you know, eight to five and then write music afterwards. I like having a life too. Right. And I have a wife and a family and I have three kids now. And so I wanted to find a balance. Mm -hmm. So I found that probably for the, the first couple of years, I, I, I had to do both. I couldn't give it up. And, you know, for the last two, two and a half years, I've taken a hiatus from writing music. And I did that so I could jump in 100% full-time on output. And it's really been an amazing thing to be able to focus on one thing and really dive in. The interesting thing is I, I finally took some scoring work because I missed writing music. Mm. And I want to make sure that I don't lose my connection to, to understanding what I do in the modern software and, mm -hmm. and kind of, I don't want to lose my, my craft. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to find a balance again, but I think it's really important to, to be able to focus on one thing while it's growing. Fascinating. That's great, Greg. I know in Output, you have three product lines now. So mm -hmm. you started with one. How did the company grow into being three products? And then tell us about those three products. Sure. We have, you know, you can think of it more as three divisions. You have to imagine Output has grown in a very organic manner, meaning I never went out and raised a bunch of capital. I never tried to go kind of the more traditional route of doing it. And instead, we built day by day, year by year. And what I mean by that is our first product came out. And we spent the next six months or nine months working on trying to learn digital marketing and learning tech support and learning how to kind of run a business, if right. you will. And then we realized, okay, look, we need to start working on a second product as well. These are software products that are sold as what's called perpetual model products, meaning you buy it and you own it forever. Mm -hmm. So kind of like how software used to work, you know, you'd pay $199. Get a box. Exactly. So- we put out a second product, and that second product increased our revenue pretty drastically. And what you learn with the perpetual software model is the more products you release, the more money you make, mm. especially when you have happy customers that are coming back. So when we learned that, you know, our whole mentality used to be, okay, what's next? Let's make more products and more products. But we still wanted to balance that with making sure that we we're releasing products that were good. Mm -hmm. And quality was of the utmost importance because all we had was our reputation. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of competition in our industry. And these people, they liked our products because they really were good quality. So I think it was a matter of trying to build the business. And then, you know, we realized our customers are people that create music. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if it's software or hardware or subscription or you know, paying it one off, we want to be able to provide them with whatever was good for them. So after releasing, I think it was about five or six software products, we ended up coming out with a desk, which Why? sounds ridiculous. But 
Well, we'd put out a, a blog about the desks that people make music on. Mm-hmm. And we found that, A, there wasn't really a great option out there for the price point that people were looking. Mm-hmm. So you can find IKEA desks for a couple hundred dollars that really weren't appropriate for what they wanted to do. It kind of had to be hacked together. Or people were, they'd have to go and spend two or $3,000 for a very high-end custom-made piece. We knew there was a hole, and this blog ended up being the single most popular blog that we had ever published. And the blog was about a desk? It was about where do people make music in terms of their home studio? Oh. What, what are they making music on? When you push a blog out, you can usually check the click-through rate and get an idea of what's successful. And I think average is probably somewhere around 1%. That's probably industry standard. Mm-hmm. If you can get one out of 100 people to click on that blog, That's it's good. doing pretty well. Yeah. This one had about a 7.5% click-through rate. Wow. So we knew that this was something that very much intrigued people mm-hmm. that they that there was a hole in the market. So Output was launched in my old music studio and we moved into the 7,000 square foot facility at that time and we needed lots of desks. Mm. So we started designing our own desks internally. For your own use. Right. Yep. And we had a head of hardware that we were working on a project that we decided to scrap and he didn't know what to do with himself. He said, what are all these desks that we're building here? (laughs) And so we said, you know, maybe we should look into this. I wonder if this is something that we could build here in America that that we could keep the quality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we ended up going direct to customers. Right. So we didn't go through retail. And you kept the price to a reasonable price point then. Exactly. By going, you know, B to C, going direct to consumer, we were able to take out the margin of the intermediary. Middleman. Exactly. Right. And, and did you use your mailing list at first? And are you still doing that? Or do you, do you go beyond your existing customer base for the hardware? Well, I mean, look, everything starts with our customer sure. base. You know, we're always trying to push things out and grow that customer base. So that's where digital advertising and marketing comes in. Mm-hmm. It really all started with just our customers. Yeah. We had to learn how to build our own logistics and manufacturing chain and learn how to sell direct. I mean, a 150-pound desk is not an easy thing to ship in America, let alone worldwide. Right. A little different than software. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, been a, <laughs> it's definitely been a learning experience. But we have a lot of people now that have our hardware and they love it and They also take pictures of it and share and post. And so it's become a form of branding and advertising for us as well. Nice. And you have other products now besides the desk? Yeah. So last year, it was actually a year and a week ago, we launched our first SaaS product. It's called Arcade. You know, the way I describe it to people that that aren't in our industry or don't quite understand is you can think of it kind of like a Netflix for music makers. It is a cloud-based software product where you're getting new content delivered directly within the software. Mm-hmm. When I say new content, it's new samples and new loops, elements that musicians are going to use within their music. It's completely royalty free. So anything you use, they never have to worry about royalties. Mm. It also comes in a piece of software that allows you to ma- manipulate that content so that you can really make it your own. Mm-hmm. And what I mean is Nobody wants to use an existing drum loop or a vocal sample. I mean, nobody's proud to use existing com- mm-hmm. content. You can think of it a lot like a graphic designer. They'll often go to, let's say, Getty Images or a stock photo website, and they take that content, but they manipulate it. They turn it into something completely different, right. and then it becomes their own. Right. And it's very much the same with music. So we spent a couple of years actually really building the, the tools to allow people to always work to the right tempo, to the right key, and then to build, you know, specific tools that allow them to chop up, rearrange, manipulate, really kind of affect 
that sound mm-hmm. and allow them to make something that's completely their own. Now, do you have musicians that are using uh, Arcade as well as using your legacy products? Would they would choose one or the other, or how, where do they fit into each other? Where do they? How do they play well to each other? I don't even want to think of them as legacy. In fact, uh, last week we released a new one, mm. a new standalone. They're not legacy; product. they're just standalone products. Right. So the difference is, some are standalone and you can buy them, and some are ongoing and subscription. And the way that we differentiate the two, subscription products demand new content frequently. Mm-hmm. Arcade has new content that comes out every single day, and it comes out directly within the application. Every Literally day, every single day. Wow. We have a whole team of people that are working on new content. That's it's. It's what people like most about it. Our other products that are more on a perpetual basis, you're buying it and that's kind of what you're getting and that's Mm -hmm. sort of what is expected within the industry. These two things happen to be uh, completely independent. They don't cannibalize one another Mm -hmm. because most of our, what you buy is typically a playable instrument Mm -hmm. or an effect. And Arcade is something that's all about samples. It's all about recordings that already exist and how to integrate those into your own music. They don't do the same thing. Can you share with us some of the people or some of the songs we may have heard that are more common that are out there or some of the artists that are using it now? Well, I mean, I can tell you, look, some of the artists that use our products in general, Drake, Rihanna, Coldplay, Imagine Dragons, the score for Stranger Things, the score for Game of Thrones, uh, Black Panther that just came out. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, our products are now being used by hit makers all around the world and all the biggest composers. So we're very excited about that. It's hard to differentiate specifically who's using what product. But in general, those scores and those pieces of music are, are there. Part of it is because of what the software that you've built for those artists to use Absolutely. and make that way. And then you said on the low end, it's the, the kid in, in high school who's with his buddies and he's making a song. It's as simple as that end also, right? Yeah, our customers are really anybody who makes music. It could be the 12-year-old in the bedroom making a beat or it could be working on the next Paul McCartney record. That's fantastic. Talk about marketing. You mentioned a little bit out there. It goes worldwide right now. Is it a matter of getting the word out there, showing examples? What have you found to be a really successful way of getting the word out about your products? You know, we're, we're an e-commerce company. And what that means is that in some way, it doesn't matter what our product is. We are trying to reach people on the internet. Mm -hmm. We don't have a single person here whose job is to be a sales manager or a sales representative. We have nobody picking up the phones, calling people. For the most part, people come to our website and buy our products directly online and they get a, a, a direct download to that software. So what that means is our sales department is basically a marketing and advertising strategy. And what we're trying to do is figure out how to tell the story of who we are and what we do and how we can enable people to better make their own music. And we have to do it in a way that's not salesy or advertising, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes. So what we do is we try to focus on making content about how successful people in the music industry make their music. Mm. We have a video shoot at least once a week. We have an entire in-house film team. We go and interview lots of famous record producers and DJs and composers, go deep into their studio and get an idea of how they do it. And we show people this. And that content brings in new customers. Mm -hmm. 
and they might not know anything about output, but they're mm-hmm. they're learning about their artists, these people that are their heroes, they're learning about them on our website and in our channels. And so we find that they start saying, oh, who's this output company? And you know, we're not the only company. Most e-commerce companies are doing this. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of traditional funnel theory. We put out good content that brings people in. We try and then convince them to uh, learn a bit more about us, maybe mm-hmm. check out some of our products. And it, it typically happens in an organic way. We often don't put any of our products in the videos that we make. Often the people that we're interviewing never even mention our company or our products. So oh, it's not- so it's not obvious like the Coke can sitting on the desk. It's not like that. No. It's, in fact, it's often the opposite. Oh. You don't even know that we're involved. And we, it's, I think that's really important. If somebody thinks that the video is an advertisement for their company, they're not going to trust it. What's your philosophy about that? You're, you're out there and you're recording somebody who's making music with software or with guitars and drums and instruments. And they're not talking about output. They're not even using output in some cases. Yep. But yet you're the beneficiary of it and you're doing this. So tell me about that. What is going on there? Why is that working so well? Because you have to find your customer's trust. Mm-hmm. Think about it, you know, Don, if you were a customer and you're watching a video and it's about something that you like and you know that the artist who's, who's being interviewed is endorsing that product, you might question the integrity of it. And that's not to say, by the way, that all of our videos don't involve, I mean, some of them do involve our products, but it's always voluntary. Mm-hmm. We never say, hey, you have to use our products. Some of these artists have never even used our products. We want that video to be as authentic as possible. And if you can truly learn something and trust the video, then you start to trust the brand. Mm-hmm. And that is more important than trying to sell something on first touch point. So you're really building up trust in the brand and then as a consequence, or as almost as a byproduct of that, they buy the product. Yeah, I mean, our, our metrics show that the more people that are visiting our website and are watching our videos, the more things we sell. And that's kind of obvious, but it, it just goes to show you that as long as you're driving people to your site, they'll buy things. Mm-hmm. If you have good products, of right, course. Right. You know, our strategy has never been, hey, we have to just make videos that sell our products. It's let's make cool videos that people that, you know, our employees here will watch because they want to learn something, and that's our first touch point. Now, tell me a little bit, how do you approach those artists to do the video with? What's in it for them, so to speak, or why would they agree to be videotaped by your team showing what they do? Well, and we've never paid a single one. So it's <laughs> <Right>. uh, <laughs> People tend to want, I find at least, they want publicity when they can get it from a company that has street cred. I think that within the music making community, people look at us as a company that makes real products, high quality products. We have a lot of support from within the industry. And I think that for a lot of these artists, they find that getting involved in a video with us is a way to legitimize themselves as music makers. Right. You're also talking about an industry where a lot of it happens in a closed room behind the scenes. And there's people that question who's actually doing what. What's the motive behind something? Not so much what's the motive, but who's really doing what. I mean, you know, somebody might be known as a hit songwriter or a hit producer, or an artist might be known as a producer themselves. Think about half the songs on the radio aren't written by the people that are actually performing them. Mm, It's true. And so I think for people that are the ones, not just the artists that are singing or performing the music, but the ones that are writing and producing it, it's a way for them to say, this really is me. Here are some of my skills. Let me show you a a glimpse of my world and how I do things. Right. Come into my room and look over my shoulder for a couple of hours. Here's what I do all day long. And the end product is what you've heard 
on right. the radio or somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm. even if you have somebody who has gotten a lot of publicity in different places, this is the kind of publicity that they might want to share with their friends and their fellow musicians mm-hmm. because it's more genuine in terms of, you know, music audiophile appreciation. Right. You've got some very smart people working here. What do you look for in employees and what are you finding out there? What types of skill sets are important to you? We look for specialists. We look for people that are very, very good at a specific thing that we need. We, I mean, so there's a number of generalizations I can say. Before we hire people, we typically bring them on to work as a contractor, get an idea of whether or not, not just we are happy working with them, but more importantly, whether or not they are happy working with us. Mm -hmm. You know, would you marry somebody on a first date? Not necessarily. You know, have that first date. Right. Make sure everybody's happy and then continue on. So we first try and make sure that we have a good understanding on both sides. Mm-hmm. If there's somebody who's really amazing and we don't have a position for them, I bring them on. Because somebody who's amazing, you'll you'll find a way for them to end up in a, in a good spot. But most of the time we're looking for a very specific role and we hire, you know, we, we go through a pretty intensive interview process. They go and they meet lots of us and typically whether or not they're working here or independently, they have some work that they need to do for us. Mm-hmm. I think there's a big difference between what somebody says they can do and what they actually show you. Greg, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges that a, a typical business owner, there's no typical business owner, but a small business owner in another industry that you've faced a challenge that they may be able to relate to and how you've overcome it. I mean, there's, okay, so there, there's a few different ones I can think of. Uh, first is the challenge of, of growing. And I was told that every time you triple your revenue, you break everything. And I've found that to be true. You know, you you think of it like, hey, if we can continue to grow, we can scale. And then it's it's simple, it's just more revenue. and it's, But it typically takes more spend and more internal operations to, to grow that company. And so as your company grows, uh, whether it's legal or accounting or internal HR or even your marketing department or, you know, tech support, I mean, everything needs to grow and therefore everything becomes more complicated. And a lot of the systems that you've used previously might or might not work. Mm -hmm. So I find that there's no, hey, we've finally gotten there and now we could just kick back and relax. That's definitely one problem. I think that trying to build a SaaS product is very, very different than building a product that you sell outright. Mm. Tell me about that. So when you sell a product outright, it's all about convincing somebody to make that purchase. Mm -hmm. So you're showing them everything you can. Here's the product. You make the best product you can, and then they buy it, and that transaction is complete. With the SaaS product, it is a purchase every month, whether or not you know it or not. They are making a decision with their credit card Mm. to continue paying for something. And people would often rather give you $200 once than $10 a month, which seems kind of crazy when you think about it. But I think mentally seeing it on your credit card month after month gives you so many different opportunities to say, oh, wait a minute, I want to do it. So with the SaaS product, it's a lot more about putting it out, testing, see, see how your product is doing, get user data, get feedback, continue to tweak and refine, release the next version, Mm -hmm. see the impact of that, continue to test and refine. It's about making something better and better and better. It's about focusing on your onboarding process and focusing on that free trial conversion Mm -hmm. and then focusing on churn. So again, those are things that you don't deal with on a typical product that you're selling. We give this out as a free trial. 
we then have to convert those people to paying customers. Mm -hmm. So we have to work really hard to do that. We have to make sure they understand the product. They understand that the trial is going to end and that they're, you know, when the payments are going to start, they have to understand the value of the product in and of itself. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And then once they're using it, they have to stick around. Right. So making a, a great product that people leave after one or two months is you not know, a great product. It's gonna it's gonna kill the the company. Yeah. So we are, I think, as opposed to a lot of our other products, with this one, we're we have a whole team that is dedicated to continuing to build it and like making said, it better day. and better. And and so it's not just new content every day. It's also making the software itself better every mm. day. And as somebody who I've always been excited at the idea of not just having to build product after product, you know, and quickly releasing them, but being able to make something great. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that I'm really excited about and proud of. Greg, what kind of, uh, you, you do a lot of things like every CEO, you're wearing a lot of hats, you're riddled long days, very, very busy. What do you do to sharpen the saw? What do you do to take care of yourself? What do you do so that Greg's got enough juice in his battery every day or every month? Is What, what, what kind of take home or takeaway could you give other CEOs out there? You know, that's something that I work really hard at. Well, first of all, there's a, a podcast by a guy named Peter Atia. He's got a podcast called The Drive, and they just interviewed Matthew Walker. And I found that they did a six-part or three-part series on sleep and the impact getting a good night's sleep has on on us as people. So the first thing is after that, I've been trying to get eight hours of sleep Good every night, which is very challenging yeah. with a, you know, a two-year-old. So I think time management is really important. I try and, and I've gotten to a point where I try to think of all the things that I want to accomplish in that week, not just through the business, but also personally. And I try to schedule everything in so that the week doesn't end. And I say, well, I only did this or I only did that and I never got the things that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I make sure that I get exercise, you know, outdoor physical things that I like doing. I love cycling and rock climbing and hiking and running and I make sure I have that. I make sure that I have time with my family. Mm -hmm. And those are things that I literally, they're embedded in my calendar. I make sure I take my kids to school and I take them out to dinner and I do those things and that I'm around and I make sure that when I'm working, I'm working really efficiently. To work efficiently means you have to really be focused on what needs to get accomplished and how you're going to accomplish it. And you're not focusing on every little thing that comes in on your inbox. And that's mm -hmm. something that I had to learn. I used to get, and I still do, I mean, I probably get two, 300 emails a day. And if I spent all day just trying to respond to my email, I literally wouldn't finish and I wouldn't get anything done. So how do you do that then? I mean, everyone gets 200 emails and you don't know which one or two you really should be responding to or looking at. I mean, how do you manage that? Well, I focus on what needs to be accomplished for the week and then for that day. Mm -hmm. And then email is a secondary element. You know, a good example of something that I learned with you and with our Vistage group was that there are a number of people that put together kind of a, a weekly game plan the Friday before. And so I, I took that and I, I basically put together a Friday afternoon manager's meeting where we went over all the things that we accomplished and then what the game plan is for the next week. Mm -hmm. And that game plan is something that I write down at the end of the day on Friday. And on Monday morning, when I come in, I can look and I have a plan already laid out for the week. For and I think that's really important because usually by the time you come in on Monday, you forget what you need to be right, doing. Right, right. And so that that Monday morning game plan gets emailed to the company. I look at that and I break down, okay, how are we going to actually do these things? Mm -hmm. What do I need to do today that will get me towards my goals? And I work towards all that. 
and I don't deal with all the small minutia until those things are in a good place. I always feel like you have to work with other people that are waiting on you before you can get to the things that you have to do yourself. Right. Don't have anybody waiting for you. Right. We used to not have enough meetings, then we changed it and we had too many meetings, and now we've kind of found a balance where it's not too much and it's not too little. Greg, do you find yourself coaching your employees or giving them expectations of where you need them to be or giving them the tools that, hey, I learned how to manage my time this way? What are you doing as far as kind of bringing up people underneath you to give you more time and the ability to trust them to do what they need to do? I certainly share all the things that I learn with these people. You know, we have really brilliant people working here at Output. And so as much as I share what I've learned, I learn from them. Mm-hmm. And I think that people here, nobody just listens to me. It's it's not the kind of place where I say, hey, do this or that. And they're all, you know, yeah, no yes, problem. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's very much the opposite of that. I get questioned and fought on every little thing. And I think that if you're trying to hire smart, creative people, they are the kind of people that are going to challenge you. But they're also the kind of people that are going to bring their own ideas and often their own habits. And very often I try and learn from everybody here as well. And I take the best of of everything. I like to pass on things that I don't feel that I have to do. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to focus my time and energy on the decisions that I find to be most important. So my day is focused on where are we moving towards? Mm What is each department focusing on? Mm -hmm. What are the biggest pinches and challenges within the company itself? I am, you know, my first big move was uh, we had a guy that was, uh, his name is Brian Zarlenga. He was running marketing for us, and I moved him to be our our GM, our general manager. Mm -hmm. And I was able to trust him to take a lot of the responsibilities that I had. Mm -hmm. That was a really big step for me. And it was a huge success. I mean, he took on, so I'm not the accountant. I'm not the lawyer. I'm not the human resources person, but I was the one dealing with all of those people. So he took that on. He basically oversees all of our operations here. Not having to do all those things allowed me to focus on trying to grasp the bigger picture, trying to focus on our product line, trying to understand our customers a bit better and and really hiring, making sure the right people are are being brought in, making Mm -hmm. sure that we know who we should be hiring. So let me get this timeline straight. You start the company, you're by yourself. You have a couple of employees then early on, and then you grow. And how many employees do you have now, I might ask? Uh, we're 32. 32 now, and it's been six uh, years? Yeah, about five and a half years. Five and a half years, six years. So early on then, you realize that for me to grow, or for the company to grow, I've got to shed some of these other responsibilities. You found a guy like Brian, is it, mm-hmm. that capable of doing one thing, Brian, let me bring you along. You make those decisions. I'm not going to make any more. And you had the discipline to then not do those things anymore. Is Am I getting that correct? Yeah. I mean, any manager that's uh, micromanaging or really got their hands in too many things where, where you, know, you slow the company down, yeah. I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. But I've learned and I'm continuing to learn that if you want things to progress, you have to you have to hire smart people and let them do what you know what they're going to do. Yeah, now, I do find that if you're completely hands-off, sometimes they can go down a path that you don't necessarily want them to go down or agree on or agree with. So it's just a matter of finding that balance of not being involved every day, but not stepping out for months at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that you know, you're know you never going to grow if you can't trust people and, and empower them to do a great job at what they do. And they get job satisfaction out of that also, I would imagine. 
Yeah. And you know, look, I'm never going to be better at marketing than our head marketing person. I'm never going to be better at graphic design than our head graphic design person. You know, there, yeah. there's a reason we hire these people. They're all better at what they do than me. I'm just good at knowing what I can't do and mm-hmm. getting a, you know, having a good idea of what I want to accomplish and how to get there. Well, Greg, I want to thank you so much for your time today that you spent with me. You've been very gracious and talking about and very transparent talking about the company, about your journey. And it's a wonderful story. And I just can't thank you enough. And I think that our listeners will really appreciate what you have to say. Well, thanks so much. Good to get together. Thank you for listening to My Company Story. I'm your host, Don Burge. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a comment and subscribe. To hear more of My Company Story on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And go to our website, mycompanystory.com, to find more episodes.